0: Uh, Listen, if we've never personally met, if you're visiting with us, I know what it's like to come into a church for the very first time where you don't know people, you don't know what happens. Uh, My name's Greg and I'm part of an amazing team here as well. I might break out into song any moment because yesterday I went and saw Cinderella. Now I know most of you think I'm a man's man. I'm not. I can't fix a car. I don't want to fix a car. I can't hammer a nail. I don't want to hammer a nail. I like going to musicals, all right? And it was very, very good, wasn't it? In fact, um, Jasmine was there and there was quite a few people. I bumped into a few people from church there. Uh, So uh, I'm I'm not, you know, we all assume certain things about each other. What I want to talk to you about this morning is the problem with religious rules and expectations. It is a good one because I think any group of people that gathers together regularly. So think of your family, if you go to school or at university. uh, Think of your workplace. Think of the church, you know, the spaces that you come into. You might go to a small group um, in our church, a connect group, or you come here on a Sunday. So any, any time I think people gather regularly, the Essendon Football Club, they need to gather a bit more. They do, don't they? It's going to be a long, hard year for the bombers but any time that people gather regularly they have a system, rules, expectations, how things function. So where does dad like to sit to watch TV? Who touches the remote? Right? And when you go and visit someone's house you don't know those rules or expectations, you get a very quick lesson when you break one, right? Because you just feel awkward, you feel the tension, you're not really sure what you've done wrong but you're in the wrong chair. Uh, it can happen in church, John Graham was telling me years ago he went to a church to speak and he sat in the wrong chair and an old lady directly told him to move uh, because that was her chair and he was in it, not knowing he was the guest speaker that Sunday. <laughs> so I think, you know, like your workspace, school, we have, we need, we need expectations, we need a system of how we can act and live together in a way that's functioning and healthy. So. I'm not against expectations and systems, but here's the problem. Often, instead of serving their original purpose, and that is that we we know how to work, live, serve each other, how to to be a healthy, functioning group of people in any sphere of our lives, so work, school, home, church, this principle is applied anywhere, but those rules are supposed to actually serve us and to make sure that we know how to love, care and nurture one another. But for some reason, there's this human tendency where we grab hold of those rules and we make them more important than the people they're supposed to serve. And it's not a new problem, right? It's not, you know, I think it's just human behaviour. And unfortunately, Christians are very good at doing that, at morphing this idea that there are expectations about the way God wants us to live and function together as his disciples and his people. But we morph it into this place of, well, now they become hard and fast rules and if you break them, you can no longer be part of this group. Now, I'm sure if you've been a Christian longer than, you know, 25 minutes, I'm sure you've experienced some religious rules and expectations. So I was thinking about my life in different church communities and faith communities I've been involved in over the years and I've written a list of some of the rules that used to get preached or ...expected in the groups that I sat in. So here's some of them. This is a good one. There's certain rules around what you can use in cooking. You can't use alcohol. Does anybody remember those days? You can't put alcohol, you can't drink alcohol, you can't touch alcohol. Um, Women have to cover their heads in church. Ladies, I'm sorry, but your heads aren't covered today. Men can't have beards. Now, I didn't know this one. I think John Graham told me that one. Uh, You can't shop on a Sunday... ...even if you ran out of milk or bread. Now I'm young enough, I was going to say old enough... ...but I'm young enough to remember that one. That if you ran out of something and you weren't prepared... ...you couldn't go to the milk bar. If you're not old enough to know what a milk bar is, Google it. You couldn't go to the milk bar and get a loaf of bread... ...or a little, a quart of milk probably back then. Um, Yes, I'm sorry, quart. look, Look that up as well. Christians can't dance... Now, that's not saying Christians can't dance. Some, most Christians can't dance. But, actually, I was talking to Sam before. You can dance, right? But most Christians, but you know what I mean? Like you can't, if you're a Christian, you can't, you know, go to a, um, you can't dance at weddings. You can't, you know, we'll leave that one alone. You can't watch TVs or movies. You certainly couldn't Netflix these days, I suppose. Um, you cannot play cards. I remember when I was a kid, um, a church actually not far from here I was attended and they preached against using playing cards. They wouldn't be happy with the way we give out our coffees after church. <laughs> so when we got home, my mother threw all the playing cards in the bin. Uh, well, they're back now, just so you know. Uh, women can't teach or lead in church. Well that's a, we won't touch that one, that's enough for today. <laughs> Obviously we don't practice that here, right? Uh, you can't have tattoos, that's why Jordan's not here today. No, that's a joke. Jordan is preaching at our Box Hill campus and Charles and April are over there as well. But you certainly couldn't show tattoos even if you had them. Um, Is communion each week, each month, only at Easter? I mean, different denominations, expectations and rules. Uh, one, One of my Kenyan friends told me once, you can't be a pastor without wearing a tie. And they were deadly serious. Uh, to which I responded, "Would well, you think Jesus wore a tie? And he sort of went, huh? <laughs> he had never thought about that, right? Uh, you can't have drums in church. Max, I'm sorry, they've got to go. Can't have drums. I was actually part of, this is true, I was part of a conversation years ago. You can't have a keyboard synthesizer in church. And the reason this elderly person was adamant is it had the word sin in it which I don't think he knew how the spelling of synthesiser worked. Uh, Christians can't receive medical intervention or go to a doctor. Uh, The elders and the the ministers and leaders have to sit on the stage, right, so they can oversee everybody else. Who remembers those days, right? Yeah, you're all old like me. You have to wear your Sunday best. Well, I tried to make that rule today, but some of you didn't follow that rule. I'm sorry. (laughs) And one of the, ch- the church fellowship that Sue and I met in, we couldn't, you couldn't date or go out with someone without the leader's permission. We clearly, clearly broke that rule because we actually got married. But uh, that's another story, some of you know that story. Why am I doing this? Well, I want you to think about your unwritten, often unwritten, unspoken expectations but they become rules. Um, So think again, think of your family, maybe your extended family. My family has certain rules and expectations that they're not really spoken about. And if you bring it up, it's just too much of a conflict. Um, Think about your workspace, but also think about us as a faith community, as disciples of Christ. What sort of expectations and rules do we have? So both personally, you know, what's in your head about what, is acceptable for Christians to say not say should we all look the same dress the same talk the same do the same things where's the where's the where's the boundary of breaking this sort of rule the more i thought about this idea and i'm going to get to john chapter 9 and 10 in a moment the more i thought about this idea what struck me is i think most of us inherit them without actually validating them or or putting them back into the microscope of Is this helping us or is this now become a demigod? Is this rule actually serving us to be healthy, functioning community? That's their purpose. Any rule, road rules, you know, that's their function. But have they become more important than the people they're supposed to protect and serve? And that's what I want you to think about, the rules. And maybe the ones you inherited from your parents, maybe other churches or faith communities you've been involved in in the past. But I want you to think about these rules and reassess your expectations. So on this second slide, uh, thanks Mel, um, this is not a new problem. In fact, Jesus faces this particular problem himself, um, which you'd sort of think that's a little bit of a (laughs) – it might surprise you. And if you're new to Christianity or you're visiting with us, part of what we do with the Bible or, or the Scriptures is we believe God's handed them down to every generation to tell the story that give us principles that we live out today. So the stories are historical. They have their own cultural sort of um, expressions and things that we don't connect with. But there's a principle here in every story in the Bible that God wants us to apply it into our lives so we can get through life um, as he planned it. That's why we unpack some of this um, scriptural truth every week. Some of you have heard John chapter 10, and you can see on the, s- the slide behind me, I've sort of got bookends to a story. One of the reasons in John chapter 10, you ever read where Jesus talks about being the gate? I am the gate. And John's gospel is, is a bit unique from the other three. And a gospel's just uh, the disciples' account of Jesus' time on earth, where they write like their memoirs of their time with Jesus. By the time John gets to write his, the other three are already written. And the other three share very similar sort of structure and accounts. John, who was very close to Jesus while he was on earth, relationally and emotionally, he writes a very, it's almost like a poetic sort of gospel. It's very different to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in it, John grabs seven statements that Jesus says, and they're the I am statements. So I am the bread of life, I'm the resurrection. I'm the light of the world, I'm the good shepherd. And he, he actually tells us the story that happened to lead Jesus to say that. So while you may have been a Christian for a while and familiar with I'm the gate or I'm the good shepherd, you may not know the actual story. What happened while Jesus was walking the earth and interacting with his own community and, and towns around the Sea of Galilee as he's talking about God's kingdom and God's love, what happened to let him say that he's the gate? So I'm glad you asked that question. Turn to John chapter 10. And uh, I was not going to come on the screen, I'm sorry, because there's just so, many, so much text, I thought, if you've got a hard copy, if you've got your smart device, just um, put in John chapter 10 and I'm sure it'll pop up. Now, this is the common thing that probably we know a little bit. So John chapter 10, he says, I'm telling you the truth. This is Jesus speaking. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, He goes ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Now look what John tells us. Jesus used this figure of speech. So gate, sheep, voice, shepherd. He uses a figure of speech. But they did not understand. He's talking to a crowd here. They did not understand what he was telling them. So therefore again, so this is the same conversation, he says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. So he's directly saying what he meant. I am the gate for the sheep. All whoever came before me were thieves and robbers. There's repetition of thieves and robbers from the previous few verses. Um, uh, But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate, so he's repeating it. Whoever enters through me will be saved. That's why we had communion today. We've entered through Jesus to get to God. He will come in and go out and find pasture. That's the sheep. The thief comes only to steal, kill and destroy. I've come that they may have life and have life to the full. Now that last verse often gets applied to the devil, but that's incorrect. He's not talking about the devil. It, not that it doesn't apply to the devil in a general sense, but he's actually talking to a group of Pharisees. And so you can see this sort of narrative arc, the start and finish. So we've read sort of the finish and you could read the rest of that conversation that Jesus has with them in the crowd in your own time. But I want you to go back to John chapter 9 verse 1 because this is the start of this narrative arc that creates the drama that leads Jesus to use these figures of speech from his culture. Sheep, sheep gate, shepherd know the voice, they call him out, they come out, he goes ahead of them. You know, thieves and robbers try to jump in. He uses this known metaphor from his culture, but most of us not being shepherds or sheep farmers in this room probably don't relate to it, and even our modern sheep farming is a little different. So let me unpack what happens here because this will help explain Jesus is confronting religious expectations and rules that were not from God. They look like they were, They were coated in this idea that if you did this, you'll be righteous and holy, similar to a lot of other religious groups that are trying to follow God today in our world. Some of our rules and expectations can look like they're right, can look godly, but in actual fact they don't serve the purpose that maybe they are originally designed for and we're better off without them. Jesus is actually dealing with this problem. So in chapter 9 verse 1, let's go there. Because part of the problem is we're so used to reading the Bible in our modern way of just grabbing a verse or a paragraph, we don't read the whole story. And there's a story here that puts the teaching in context. So Jesus actually heals a blind man. Look at John chapter 9, verse 1, which is the start of this particular narrative. He heals a blind man and he does it on the Sabbath. Now, because you and I are not Jewish or Messianic Jews, we don't quite get the link here. But part of the problem is you can't do certain things on the Sabbath. They were the rules and the expectations that the Pharisees were enforcing on everyday people who really loved God and were trying to worship God and follow God. But they had a bunch of rules that weren't in Scripture, not part of the Messianic law that was given to Moses. They tried to expound and explain those laws, they became a whole bunch of new rules. Century after a century, rabbis would add to those. Moses laws. Now, I don't want to burst your bubble. There's not 10 commandments. There were 613 of them, right? We only teach the first 10 um, because some of the other rules don't apply to us anymore. They were Jewish rules about living in the desert and following God... ...and getting Egypt out of them and we don't follow their holiness rules. So one of the rules was you can't wear clothing with two different types of thread. Now, leave your clothes on, for goodness sakes... (laughs) Uh, but that was one of their, that was actually God told them to do that. But that was more about their history in Egypt and them being solely dedicated to the one God Yahweh. There was a whole lot of things we don't do that, it, that were part of the 613 laws that Moses handed down before they enter the Promised Land, because they're about to go into a land with many other gods. They just come out of Egypt 40 years earlier. They had many gods, and Pharaoh was God. And so, you know, Yahweh's saying to them, if I'm to become your God and you are to be my people, if we have this covenant relationship, you have to exclusively put me as your one and only God. And he gives them a list of things to do to help them understand how important it is. But by the time Jesus arrives on earth, we've had all these traditions of men, is a phrase that the New Testament uses about them, Jesus himself talks another conversation with the Pharisees you have traditions of men but they don't get you any closer to God the original tents often good so Jesus heals this blind man now here's how he does it it's the most unorthodox healing you've ever seen right in our culture if you're sick and someone wants to pray for you what do they do they lay hands on you or they'll pray for you maybe over the phone or they'll send you a text message well Jesus decides to use spit now, I'm not recommending you try this, by the way, the next time you pray for your sick friend. He spits on the ground. You can read it in John chapter 9, the first you know, five, seven verses. Spits on the ground, makes a little bit of paste, really mud and saliva. He puts it on the blind man's eyes and he says, now go and wash off in the pool of Siloam. Go and wash off, go and wash the mud off. Now, I want you to hang on to something here that most people don't see The blind man has never seen Jesus at this point. He's still blind, but he goes and does what Jesus tells him to. So you can see that on on slide three, after his eyes are open, he washes his his eyes, the mud comes off. And then if you look from John chapter 8, the next paragraph, people who knew him, they knew he was blind. He'd been begging all his life because of his disability. You know, there was no government care and all that stuff, he had to survive by sitting on the ground in the street begging for, for coins, loose coins, and try to scramble a living that way. So people knew him and so they say, what on earth happened? Can you imagine if someone, your neighbour was blind and he, one day he turns up and can see and he tells you this incredible story of a man spitting on the ground, telling him to go and wash off in the pool and all of a sudden your eyes are open. So news starts to spread about what's happened here. So here's a little bit of a twist. So the next, you'll see it on the next slide. Thanks, Mel. The Pharisees question him, and it's not a very nice conversation. Now, when we, when we hear about teachers of the law in the New Testament, they're not talking about, you know, road rules, and they're talking about Jewish rabbi rules to stay righteous and holy. So, again, originally they had 1613 they had to follow. Century after centuries, rabbis had added to that so for one example, um, that one rule about keeping the Sabbath holy, that's commandment number four. If you know your ten commandments, it's number four. You shall keep the Sabbath and keep it holy. They had added 39 different rules under that one command. You could only work, walk so far. There was a whole bunch of things you couldn't do. So here's one of the odd things. If you got mud on your one garment, you didn't have a whole range of garments, on the Sabbath, you weren't to touch it until it dried because if you touch mud, that's mortar, that's work. So you're breaking the Sabbath. But once it dried, you could flick it off. How's that? Imagine if we had that rule here in Unity Hill Church, right? They had a whole stack of rules. If you're a tailor, you had, you had your, nut, your needle couldn't be stuck in your garment somewhere once Sabbath kicked in at 6pm on Friday. Now here's one of the crazy rules they had. This is what you need to know. If John doesn't tell us because the original readers knew this. One of the rules they had is you could spit on the Sabbath but it had to land on a rock because if it landed on the ground, that makes mortar, that's work, you're breaking the Sabbath. So you know one of the Pharisees are a bit annoyed. They've heard not only that Jesus has opened this blind man's eyes but for goodness sakes he's broken one of our rules. They don't care the guy can actually see. I mean the irony here is just outstanding, isn't it, right? But hang on a minute, before we point the fingers at them, we can be exactly the same. I mean, when I read this, I can be be as, you know, my personality, I'm very ordered and structured. And sometimes, you know, in fact, at the show yesterday, there was a fight behind us, in the seat behind us, right? And they're swearing like anything, these two women going for it. And uh, when the show finished, I said to Sue, let's get out of here before the fight breaks out. We took off. But we can be like that. We're so structured, right? We like... We need predictability and expectations but there comes a tipping point where that rule no longer helps people see God, get to God, know God, experience God's love, his grace. And we were just singing that, right? When I see the cross, I see, no, no, rules and regulations. I'm sorry. I've got to rewrite that one. That song just sets us up for failure. So we can be pharisaical. Now, we, we can read these stories and, you know, think, oh, those Pharisees, what a bunch of idiots. But we can be exactly the same. We just have a different set of rules, right? So you've got all this going on in the text. And, again, I, I encourage you to read from chapter 9, verse 1, all the way through to 1021 in your own time. I'm just going to show you this arc. So they question the man. And, of course, they say to the man, you know, is he from God? They've heard about Jesus. It's a silly question, really, because the, the blind man who now can see says, well, he must be from God. Who else has opened a man who was born blind, opened his eyes? Who else has done that in the history of of humankind? Nobody. He must be from God. But the Pharisees were focused. He did it on the Sabbath. And he made mud. Broke one of our rules. And so they take it out on this poor guy. I mean, this guy's just received an incredible, miraculous healing. He's getting grilled. Now, here's another thing I want you to know in context. There's only one synagogue in town. If you really want to worship God regularly and you really love God and you have a heart for God and you want to be part of His people and express your worship for God, if you get upset at Uni Hill Synagogue, you can't go to Plannershaker Synagogue down the road. There is no other church in town, right? There is no other synagogue. So if you're not getting along with the Pharisees, the guys that run the place, you're in a bit of trouble. Even if you have a heart after God. And this is the irony in the story here, right? See, is the one and only place he can go and worship God. Blind or before he when he was blind, and now he can see. It's the only place he can go to Sabbath on synagogue, uh, synagogue on Sabbath. It's the only time he can do it, and they're now grilling him for something he didn't actually do. And he's received this incredible healing. I mean, it's, this is Monty Python stuff here, really, isn't it? It's just so funny. Now, listen to this. They're not happy with the answer. He, they find him a little bit argumentative, you know? When, when Let's face it, if an untheologically trained person says to a theologically trained person, Well, he must be from God. You open my eyes. But you have a set of rules in your head. You think, Well, he can't be from God. He broke the rules. So guess what they do? They ask for his parents to come in. They grill them. Now this is not a parenting course today, because mum and dad actually leave him hanging out to dry. Let's have a read. <laughs> um, incredible, incredible story. But anyway, uh, so they the parents come in. Look at verse uh, verse 20. Oh sorry, verse yeah verse 20 of chapter 9. We know he's our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. So they're confirming that, yes, he was, he's been blind all his life. But how he can see or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Now, that's legitimate. They weren't there. Okay? But he is of age, right? So in their culture, he had to be about probably 30 years of age to be an adult. He's of age. He can speak for himself. Now, again, this is not a parenting course. I don't even recommend you say that. But look at why. Now John tells us why they say it, and this is very important, in the narrative, in the drama, in the tension, in the conflict. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, that is the Pharisees, for already, this is very important, the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, would be put out of synagogue, excluded. You know, an old word that used to go around in, Pentecostal circles was excommunicated, right, out of 1 Corinthians. Kicked out. So the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the pastors, the priests, whatever term you want to use to connect, had already decided that anyone who says Jesus is the Messiah, the one that's come to redeem and save God's people, you're out. Why? Because they had a bunch of rules that didn't fit their religious expectations and rules. So that's why the parents say, He's of age, you can question him. Well, lo and behold, look at the next paragraph. The Pharisee goes, let's call him back in. So they grill him a second time, this poor guy. So a second time they summon the man who'd been blind. And the tension, the argument just gets hotter and hotter. Unscholared theological man who's received his sight with a bunch of theologically trained rabbis have this incredible argument about who Jesus could be. And... Look, I mean, verse 25 is probably the most well-known verse in this narrative story. He ends up, he says to them, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I can see. Right? Now, keep in mind, the blind man has never seen Jesus still. He's never physically laid out. When he left Jesus, he was blind with mud on his eyes. So, of course, they get this big argument going on and you can read it, you know, they quote Moses at him and, he just basically says, well, he must be from God. I can see, right? So look at verse uh, 34. To this they reply, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And guess what they did? Threw him out. So everybody in town, this is a small village on the Sea of Galilee. Everybody in town that knew the Pharisees had already decided to throw anyone out who wanted to know Jesus and that's exactly what happens to him. Now read the very next verse because this is the pivot, this is the tension. Jesus heard they had thrown him out and what did he do? He went and found the man. Isn't that incredible? He knew this man had a heart to worship and follow the Father and he hears the very people in charge of shepherding and leading God's people with love and grace and mercy, threw him out. So now Jesus takes them on. So it's all downhill from here for them, by the way. Make a good movie, this one. But isn't that interesting? If you've got a highlighter or can underline it, that's the point you need to remember. The man's never seen Jesus still. He gets kicked out because of what he says to them about him being Jesus being from God. So Jesus stops what he's doing when he hears about it and he goes and finds him. And this is what he says to him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Now that's, by the way, that's Jesus' favourite title for himself. We call him the Son of God and that's in the scripture as well. But he uses this phrase from Daniel. This is a phrase from the book of Daniel. And it's talking about the one who will come and deliver and take charge, the Son of Man. And so he says to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? In other words, do you, do you believe that the Messiah is coming? And the, the man says, who is he, sir? Again, he no, see, he doesn't know who he's talking to. He doesn't realise yet this is the man that opened his eyes. And so uh, he says, tell me and I'll believe. So Jesus says to him, you have seen him. And in fact, I'm the one speaking to you. The man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. So then Jesus says, this is the the." final sort of part in the narrative arc. For judgment I've come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Do you get the twist here? Right. So a blind man sees but the religious people into rules and expectations and keeping this certain structure, they're blind. They think they can see. Now look at verse 41. Some of the Pharisees are in the crowd and they hear Jesus say that. And they do the most ridiculous thing. Never ask Jesus a question you don't already know the answer to, right? It's a police strategy too, right? They say in the crowd, they say, ah, oh, are we blind too? Just be careful what you say to Jesus, by the way. So Jesus says, well, if you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty. But because you think you can see or tell everyone you see, you are guilty. They couldn't see at all. They, what couldn't they see? They could not see that God is more interested in love and grace and serving people than rules that actually don't bring you to God. Here's the problem with religious expectations and rules. They keep people away from God who are looking for him. Now, for a moment, there are some people in this world not looking for God, not interested, fine. But there's more people looking for God than what we often think. And I wonder when you have a conversation with someone at work or someone walks into our church community for the first time, what expectations and unspoken rules do we have that they see but we often don't see? And are we keeping them away from God? We can be modern-day Pharisees like anybody else. That's part of the challenge here. So when Jesus says, well, I'm the gate and everyone else is a thief and a robber. We get it, right? The only, here's how I'll say it in sort of plain English, even in my own head. The only way you get to God is not through following religious rules. You only get to God through Jesus. And if anybody else tells us that if you don't follow this rule, if you don't follow that rule, if you're, not, you're not holy, you're not right with God, you're excluded from church or from this Christian community or from God, if anyone says that, they're the thief and the robber. I'll go a little bit further. If we enforce un-God commanded rules that look Christian, we're acting as if we're the gate, as if we're the only way to God. We're not. I I can't get you to God more than you can get me to God. The only way to God is through Jesus Christ. Not some rule or expectation that you inherited or at some point served a good purpose but it's had its day. Or it's become too important in the community. It's been elevated to a godlike status. When in actual fact, that's not the point of rules and expectations or any system of functioning in a healthy way. The point is that we can actually get to God together. That's the point of them. Right? That that's the whole reason. And that's what we can learn from this one little story about Jesus and this blind man and the Pharisees' response. In fact, the religious leaders handled this man in a disgraceful, anti-God manner by kicking him out of the one community he could worship his God, blind or, vision, you know, could see. And we've got to be careful that we don't do it in sort of another twisted way and think we're being righteous. So... Here's here's some of the problems with it. Let me go to that second. I think it's the third last slide. One of the problems is I've got a three up here. They keep people from getting to God. And of course, you know there are there are plenty of people that are that want to know God. They may not use the same words, or language. They may not act in the same way or sound like us or dress like us. But they're searching for meaning in life. They think that there's there's something out there that's a greater good. And I know this from you know, people I've chatted to in our church community who were totally unexposed to Christianity but before they they came into faith with Jesus, they were searching. It was in them. God was calling them. The Spirit was already working on them. And if we create all these barriers and rules about what's acceptable and not acceptable and someone's generally trying to find God, well, we're no different than the Pharisees. That's the problem. And I'm sure you felt it when you visited other Christian communities at times where they have a whole bunch of rules. Some churches even have them on the walls, right? I, I used to go and visit churches for a job I did and there'd be all sorts of rules on the front door. I used to think, oh, that's very inviting. I better not say anymore. <laughs> the second thing you can see, they don't reflect or represent God. The heart of God is that everyone comes to faith and salvation and the knowledge of God. That's the heart of God. Now, I'm not saying we throw all expectations and systems and rules out the window. Please, I'm not going to the other extreme. We ne- Every group of people that gathers and lives and works and serves side by side, we need to know how to do that together. But what we should be doing is choosing ones that actually serve that purpose and ones that no longer serve that purpose or have been elevated too high above the people, then we should get rid of it. That, that's, you know, but they don't reflect God. I mean, Linda read John 3, 16 and 17. God so loved the whole world, not just his people, <laughs> not just people already following him. So here, here's the, the crazy thing, right? The longer you're a Christian, the more you can deceive yourself that because you do good things, God loves you more. That's not true. God doesn't love you any more than the day he created you, whether you knew him or not. And no matter what happened in between today and your birth, whether you followed him or not, or you did the worst things in the world or not, God has never stopped loving every single person the same amount. But, you know, part of our pharisaical head (laughs) is, oh, I've done all this for God. You know, I've done that, I've done that. come early, I serve on this. If only other people knew. What, what do they let that person up for? You know, why is that person serving in that thing? I've been here longer than them. We do exactly the same, right? We just don't see it. So, and it lacks love and grace, <laughs> which, of course, we were singing it before. As we are singing it, I'm thinking, oh, you know, that's part of the challenge. You know, we can sing it but actually disconnect it. As soon as the singing stops and we go to gather and get a coffee and someone pushes in front of us, they'll know the religious rules I've got, right? One thing to sing it, it's another thing to live it. Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love, not by your religious systems. And again, I'm not saying we don't need them, but which ones do we need? So here's, a, here's another three. I'm nearly finished. They're exclusive. As soon as you make all these rules, then you exclude people who don't fit that profile or don't meet up to that standard. And again, let me remind all of us who have been Christians for a little while in in this room and online, we never meet up to God's standard. That's why we call it grace. That's why we we have Jesus' righteousness. I don't have my own, no matter how good I can be. I could be a saint. I could live in a monastery and just pray all day and, well, no, I probably couldn't, but eat little food. No, I couldn't do that either. But that doesn't make me more holy or righteous. The only way I'm holy and righteous is that Jesus has covered me with his as a gift, right? doesn't matter what we do or how long we do it. The Pharisees used to have this ridiculous prayer about, thank God I was not born a sinner or a woman. They would pray that every morning. I'll leave that one right there. That that woke you back up, didn't it? I can tell you some. You can, you can actually Google some of their ridiculous... No wonder Jesus is so annoyed and upset with them and actually goes and finds the man to really reinstate him and then to, if they're silly enough to open their mouth in the crowd, Jesus is going to correct them. Are we blind? Well, actually, yeah, you are. And not only that, you're guilty and you're a thief and you're a robber because I'm the only gate. So let me finish with an explanation and I'll get the team to come up as we finish. Why is Jesus in John 10, 1 to 10, talk about the sheep, I'm the gate for the sheep? Well, there were two sort of systems in his ancient world for looking after sheep. They had like, the shepherds would take their sheep out into the hills to feed during the day, to graze. And sometimes they were family members, sometimes they were hired, hired people. But they would take the sheep out into the fields and if they lived in a nearby town or a city, someone had actually made a business they would built a sheep pen usually out of um, bricks and mortar and there'd be an actual gate on to entrance to get in and they'd hire someone to sleep there overnight so all the shepherds from around town would bring all their sheep in for the night the shepherd would go home and the the hireling or the servant would sleep there to make sure no one s- steals the sheep overnight in town so this is Jesus's culture and the Pharisees culture and everyone listening to that story So they get this imagery and the shepherds would come back in the morning and you imagine there's, you know, 300 sheep but I've only got 20 of them as a shepherd. I just call for my sheep and they know me. So out of the 300, those 20 run out with me, right, and they follow me and then we head off back to pasture for the day. That's what he sort of uses two illustrations in this one section. The other one is if a shepherd was so far away from town or city and nightfall was coming, they often had their own sort of rustic little sheep pens that they built out of thorny bushes, some rocks, so to protect them from wild animals and stuff like that. And there was no gate. They built this little sort of little pen, but wolves and stuff couldn't jump in because of the thorns. But because the, there was no gate, the shepherd would sh- sleep across the very narrow entrance. So no, if any predator was going to come in, they had to wake up, the shepherd would wake up and they'd take them on. So these, two, these are the two ideas when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, they know my voice, I call and they follow me. And then when he says, I'm the sheep gate, that's what he's referring to the other illustration where he could actually, he'd sleep there. But all these religious rules and expectation, pharisaical guys, thieves and robbers. Because I'm the only one that can get you to God. Just close your eyes for a moment because... I'm going to guess you've thought about some of the rules that you think are Christian. Just as you've been hearing this story and Jesus' way of dealing with it and the principle out of this text for us is we don't want to be modern day Pharisees. Are there any rules that you should be letting go, reviewing, maybe discussing with your family or even your connect group or your prayer group? We don't want to be self-righteous. We, we can't get to heaven that way. I, I really want you to make a bit of an action plan today. At some point this week, ask yourself what rules or expectations that may have had godly intentions in the beginning but have morphed into excluding people having access to God. Am I making it hard for people to get to God? When people look at you or our church, do they see Jesus or a bunch of rules. If an unchurched person walked into your home or you had a conversation with them at work or they came into our church, what would they encounter? What would they experience? It's imperative that we know that all of our righteousness and holiness comes from God alone through Jesus Christ. It's not something we work over as we get older as a Christian. So Father God, I ask for all of us online, in the room this morning, search our hearts. If we've inherited some expectations and rules that we think we're actually serving you and they're not really, Lord, will you just convict us, prompt us to let them go or at least have a conversation with someone else that can help us rethink it through and and adjust. May we always make sure that We welcome people who are looking for God. May we never talk, act in a way that misrepresents you, God, to someone who doesn't know you. Father, we know that our acceptance was only through your son, Jesus. And Jesus, you are the only gate. You're the only way to the Father. So Holy Spirit, this week, will you minister into our lives and transform us by your love towards us? And may we show your love to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.